This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606, Brain and Behavior. Okay, so today should finish this section about uh, drugs and hormones. And this is where we were, or maybe the next one. Something like that. So just to review, antidepressants, basically, except for tricyclic antidepressants, um, of the three classes, two of them tell you how they work by their name. Right? Monoamine oxidase inhibitors, they inhibit monoamine oxidase. Monoamine oxidase breaks down monoamine neurotransmitters, therefore making more monoamine neurotransmitters available in synapse. SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they obviously selectively block the reuptake of serotonin. So making more serotonin available. Tricyclic antidepressants stop the reuptake of all monoamines, not just serotonin. It seems like it's something these monoamines perhaps Serotonin, though there are selective dopamine reuptake inhibitors that are used as some um, antidepressants now a bit. Uh, it seems like there's some effect there, but unlike the antipsychotic drugs that I talked about last time, which stop the hallucinations right away, right? As soon as it's in your bloodstream and then it gets to your brain, you stop having symptoms of schizophrenia. Whereas with these drugs, it can take days or weeks for them to have the antidepressant effect. So it obviously isn't just serotonin or just monoamine neurotransmitters. Whereas with, with schizophrenia, it's clearly a dopamine issue. It's clearly a D2 receptor issue. Right, you saw that graph in the time. So while these drugs are effective, especially when combined with therapy, they aren't... They tell us that it's not... That, 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 that the idea of just serotonin or just monoamine neurotransmitters is, it's not just that that's the issue with depression. And we don't know what it is yet. It'll be figured out. It'll be figured out. And I mentioned lithium. No one really knows how it works. Uh, any psychotic drugs? I was asked this the other day and I did some reading. Any psychotics are actually used a little bit for the manic portion of bipolar affective disorder. Bipolar is, you go from depressed to basically the opposite of the press, which is all kinds of things all at once. And it makes some sense, because it actually is a psychotic break of some sort, right? When you think about it, because what you're doing in that case is you're being irrational. Um, people do hallucinate sometimes with bipolar, the manic part. So I guess it makes sense then. Lithium's very cheap is all. It's also two and a half times like the therapeutic index is about 2.5. So two and a half times the amount that you need to work to control your mania will kill you. So you be very careful with it. When you take lithium, salts of lithium, lithium chloride usually, uh, you go in for blood testing every day for a little while just to make sure that you're not at a toxic amount. Okay. So let's talk about opiates. There's an opiate problem in the city. There's an opiate problem in... The world. Okay, as far as the receptors were interested, there's three or four types. You're saying, what do you mean three or four? Well, there's going to be one I'm going to tell you about that isn't just an opiate receptor. 
First of all, there's the mu receptor. It's just average. <laughs> it's a statistics joke. So there aren't any statistics jokes. Statistics is something that's for people who found being an accountant too exciting. It's, there's one, okay. Um, so mu receptors are throughout the limbic system. Hippocampus and amygdala. So we're going to talk, it's going to affect memory, it's going to affect emotion. Thalamus, locus coriolis. Here we're talking about perceptual things. Uh, opiates affect perceptual, various perceptual systems. Let me just say that again. Most of the sort of interesting effects, not necessarily the being the fact that they're, it makes you high, but the sort of interesting perceptual things that happen, that kind of stuff. They have what's called a weak attraction, which means that they don't need a, very much of the opiate to fire. I mean, they have a meaning that opiates have a great effect here. I know it's sort of Kevin Tewins. The name doesn't make a lot of sense. Then there's the delta receptor. Also in the limbic system, but they don't overlap with where the new receptors are. They're also in the cortex. So we're going to have problems with higher order cognition. Hypothalamus. Well, I mean, hypothalamus does stuff like controlling your polar homeostatic systems. Yeah? So it's things like hot and cold, hungry and sated, thirsty and not thirsty, etc. And when you think about this, hypothalamus well, one, sorry, one of the, one of the uh, withdrawal symptoms of, of, of opiates is you get goosebumps, you shiver. And you alternate between that and hot flashes. And I've heard people describe the hot flashes more like someone's poking you with a hot, red hot poker. Like it's not just like you're warm. It's not like your mom going through menopause. And going, God, it's hot in here. No, it's more like somebody's touching you with something red hot. Okay? But the goosebumps are what has led people to talk about going cold turkey because he looked like a cold turkey. Oh, locus coriolis, I should have mentioned, also is important in um, uh, homeostatic stuff. Nucleus accumbens. Oh, really? It's in the reward system. That's a surprise. The medulla, sleep and wakefulness. Sure, they put you to sleep. And a lot of antipsychotic drugs also operate on the delta receptor. But it is an opiate receptor. The Kappa receptor. It sounds like a really bad fraternity. Just named after. I should say accumbens with humans every year. I say to myself, I'll change that. And I never change it. I wonder if I did it right now. I think I'm going to do it right now. <laughs> then I won't forget. Just a second. You were here when I changed that. So, oh, the ventral tegmental area, again in the reward system. Hypothalamus to thalamus again. So you see we're going to have a lot of effects on um, <coughs> homeostatic things. We're going to have, so basically, body, reg body chemistry regulation. 
We're going to have a lot of effects on higher order cognition, a lot of effects on sensation and perception, and a lot of effects on, oh, it's just going to feel good. Finally, there's a sigma receptor, which is not just for opiates. Uh, it's for all kinds of different neurotransmitters and neuromodulators, and it can cause psychotic-like symptoms when it's activated. Okay. So we have these receptors because we make our own opiates, opioids, right, encephalins and endorphins. So when you're in pain or you vigorously exercise, opioids are created in your periaqueductal gray area, which kill the pain. There's a reason these are really good painkillers, because they mimic the same painkillers we make ourselves. And of course, I mentioned the amygdala. Respiratory cough and vomit center. So you have problems when you take the drug, it slows down your breathing. When you're on, when you're withdrawing from opiates, you'll get jerky kind of breathing. Like that, okay? It'll stop you from vomiting, and then when you go into withdrawal, you vomit. There's a cough center in your brain. So in fact, one of the reasons that you might have codeine cough medicine, which you, get, you can get from a prescription, if you have an exceedingly bad cough, is that it just stops coughing. Okay? You will stop coughing if you take codeine. You will cough like hell if you're, on with, if you're withdrawing. I, I remember one night when I was living in Newfoundland and my wife had such a bad cough, like it was unreal. Um, then at like 2 o'clock in the morning, she got up and drove to the hospital. Like, that's how bad it was. And she went to emergency, and they, uh, I forget what it was, but basically they just gave her this codeine cough medicine. So she got home a couple hours later, took the cough medicine, the cough went away, and in a couple of days she was okay. But it was like, it was to the point where she couldn't function because she was just coughing all the time. So... We still had it in the medicine chest, and I had a really bad cough one day, and I'm an idiot. Also, I'm legally blind. So I read the thing, and it says, take uh, one to four teaspoons. And I took four tablespoons, because I'm stupid. Uh, I had a very, I stopped coughing. I had a really interesting evening. Lying there in bed like, I, what's going on? And then suddenly it's like, I'm having an out-of-body experience. That's interesting. I'm sort of watching myself lying here. And of course, you realize, especially when you're a psychologist, you're actually not watching yourself lying there. So then you realize it's a hallucination. You think, that's weird and unpleasant. But I'm not coughing. <laughs> At least I'm not coughing. We then threw out the cough medicine because we should, we, should, we should take other people's prescriptions. Don't be like me. And also, you shouldn't take too much. But I didn't cough. I haven't coughed in years because of that. <laughs> and of course, the reward system. There's a good reason people put a needle in their arm. There's a good reason people do things that. Now, many of us have seen it. You probably have seen the uh, the W5 documentary last year about the opiate problem in the city. You've seen that? It's disturbing. You can search it. It's uh, it's called Steel Town Down. It's a clever name. Um, it was done by W5 and Vice TV together. And there's a real issue here, right? Like, it's disturbing. Uh, they, 
the paramedics in town are dealing with somewhere between 20 and 50 overdoses a week. That's a lot. There's 70,000 people living here. It seems high. And they interview a paramedic, and he's going around the city. Uh, and they follow him around, giving people in the walks up, basically. And he said, you know, when he started on the job, it was like 2003, and he said that when we'd get a call about drugs, it was usually because a guy couldn't find his weed. You know, and he was so stoned. And we'd show up and say, you're going to be okay. He's kind of high. And now it's, you know, people are dying or taking so much that they have to go to hospital. Pretty scary stuff. But it feels really good. <laughs> this is the thing. The reason people do it is it feels good. And right away, right afterwards, right to your reward system. And there's a whole thing about a lot of drugs like Oxycontin, for example, Oxycodone, were marketed to physicians as being, oh, you can't get addicted to these, which is bizarre that they would believe it. But they did, and then it was prescribed to people, and then people can't take that anymore because their prescription runs out, and then they take heroin. It's bad. It's very bad. Well, that was depressing. Let's talk about a stimulant. So, not Coca-Cola, obviously. Though Coca-Cola had cocaine in it. Though Coca-Cola denies this now, it is clear that Coca-Cola at one point had cocaine in it. Well before any of us were born, it was taken out about 1911, so it's a long time ago. So Coca-Cola used to, it was, a, it was a patent medicine. You know that episode of The Simpsons where there's always an episode of The Simpsons has been on longer than any of you people have been alive. Um, when... There's that episode where Homer and his father go around selling their, their, their magic elixir, traveling from town to town. Or, if you want to think of something more current, uh, there's part in Red Dead Redemption, the first game, where you drink this medicine and it gives you more Deadeye. Help anybody. I've been playing a lot of that lately. So I'm very excited about it. It's a fun game. Um, it's the only game I've ever been excited about. You know, press A to cook a rabbit. Okay. This is great. I'm cooking a rabbit over a fire. Why is this fun? But I'm doing it. So it was like a medicine. In fact, most pop was originally a medicine. And it had alcohol in it. So it had wine in it, which was just alcohol. And it had coca in it, which is where you came. Uh, and it had a little bit of uh, opium. It was basically a speedball. And... Uh, it was a medicine. It was not meant to be, uh, to be consumed like we consume Coca-Cola today. I like this one here. So that, sorry, not that one there. That's just Coke syrup. It was really sold in the syrup form. Coca cocaine tooth drops. Great for your children. Yes, that's right. Is there anything better when you have a child that is having a toothache? Dentist, schmentist. Give the kids some Coke. <laughs> Actually, you know, today, see, it ends in ain, and anything that ends in ain, A-I-N-E, means that it's a local anesthetic, right? So, in fact, it is a local anesthetic. So if you give, if you have a seriously bad toothache, usually this is after a root canal or something, you can get prescribed by a dentist cocaine tooth drops, just literally like that. A friend of mine, he was completely floored because he looked at his cocaine, what? Well, yeah, but it's small amounts and it's not... They're assuming you're not going to drink it, all of it, once. 
And of course, our premium. Uh, uh, Mayor Toronto. I'm sorry. They're related. Anyway. Okay. So I'm talking here about what are called psychomotor stimulants. I'm talking about things like amphetamine, methamphetamine, uh, cocaine, ephedrine, pseudoephedrine, chot, which is, I forgot, or chot. It's probably some, it's, it's some sound we don't make in English. Uh, what else? Ecstasy. Lots of things that are, Ritalin. So that's uh, methaphenidate. Okay. So one of the things that these do, these drugs, typically, is they cause transmitter leakage. So you get, so this is how uh, things like amphetamine and methamphetamine work. Catecholamines and serotonin are just released. They're, they basically leak out without any stimulation to, from a, to the neuron. And the amount released on firing increases. And in fact, ecstasy does that simply with serotonin. Um, cocaine only blocks reuptake of, of dopamine. It's basically a dopamine reuptake inhibitor. So that's what it's doing in the central nervous system. And in the peripheral nervous system, these things cause a release of epinephrine, which is why they are performance enhancing drugs. Right? Not in large amounts. If you take too much cocaine, you will not be a very good athlete. But the right amount, and in fact, you will be good. You'll be, you'll, you're, you will be better than average. You will have faster reaction times, things like that. And if you've, if you've overtrained about something, so let's say you're uh, a pilot. Or, or a professional athlete, a small amount of a stimulant will actually make you will perform better than you would without the stimulant. Okay. There have been uh, human factors type studies done with uh, airline pilots in simulators where they're given small amounts of amphetamine. And they actually react more quickly to threats, bad things happening, okay, than they would without that. Militaries throughout history have used amphetamines. The German military in World War II basically ran on amphetamine. Uh, it was, they were basically running on meth. So did the German population. They were just, it was a very popular drug. The Allies wouldn't, were using methamphetamine, just amphetamine. <laughs> it wasn't meth. Uh, our military doesn't use uh, amphetamine, hasn't been a very long time. The... American military only does it for pilots, and it's only when they're on their way back from the mission. Um, wasn't always that way, but that's the regulation now. Keep you awake, maybe you're flying, like, I don't know if you know this, but some of these missions they fly sometimes, they will fly from the continent of the United States to Afghanistan and back. Well, on the way home, you get kind of tired. So, take some amphetamine. So athletes will take things like, there's a reason, like I said, that things like cocaine are controlled substances because, or banned substances, because it can give you a, an advantage. 
there was even a, a Canadian, uh, what's his name? Ian, Ian Miller, is that him? Uh, he was a like equestrian rider in the Olympics, and he took cocaine and got banned. It seems to me if the horse took it, it would be more of an issue. Whatever. Okay, caffeine. Like alcohol, we don't actually know how this works, and it's legal. It's great. The illegal drugs, we really aren't sure about. It's the illegal ones we understand. So how does caffeine work? Um, it might block adenosine, which is a neuromodulator, which acts as a neuromodulator, which inhibits firing. So it's disinhibiting. And high doses, and when I say high doses, this isn't five cups of coffee here. This is like having, this is like taking, you know, a thousand milligrams of caffeine at once. So a couple of wake-up pills. Okay? Um, that'll block the benzodiazepine receptors, which I showed you the other day, the benzodiazepine receptors. Caffeine, unlike all these drugs so far, is pretty safe. About 190 million or so, maybe 200 million North Americans are caffeine dependent. In other words, they have withdrawal symptoms. So when they wake up in the morning, maybe you have a stuffed up nose or they have a headache, they drink a cup of coffee and it's gone. So it's about 85% of adults in North America, like so Canada says. Pretty safe. Also, you know, actually is a sip of caffeine, of coffee will usually get rid of the withdrawal symptoms. Humans can discriminate, adult humans can discriminate between two milligrams and zero milligrams of caffeine in a pill. After they take it, even five minutes, they say they've had caffeine in it. And this is experienced caffeine users, so anybody who drinks coffee, let's say, or, or drinks Coca-Cola. We can't do that with any other drug. We can do it with caffeine. It's almost certainly the most commonly used psychoactive drug in the world. I would not be going out on any limbs by saying. Half-life of caffeine is pretty short, too. Like I told you guys, right? But yeah, between 30, depending on the adult, between 30 and maybe 90 minutes, right? And when you drink a cup of coffee, a decent cup of coffee will have about 100 milligrams of caffeine in it. So that means in 30 minutes, it's 50. In 30 more minutes, it's 25. In 30 more minutes, you keep doing the math. Except in, in little kids, it's different. So toddlers and below, we measure that in days, not minutes. So uh, don't give your kid coffee. You know, when you were little and you asked mom if you could have some coffee and she said you're too young, she was right. Mom doesn't know anything about neuropharmacology, but mom knows that kids shouldn't be drinking coffee. Your mom's right about a lot of stuff. One of them is don't drink coffee when you're too young to drink coffee. Right? Or Coke. I, I just see, seeing people give little kids, it's not as much here. It was more in Newfoundland. You'd see like a two-year-old with a bottle full of Pepsi, and you'd go, there's something wrong there. And I'm not worried, not the teeth. It's more like that kid's going to be awake for a long time. But yeah, it's pretty safe. I mean, it's not something you should really worry about. You can, if you get pregnant, your doctor will probably tell you, eh, five, five, six cups a day, you'll be fine. So in other words, don't take wake-up pills 
Yeah, please. It's like when does that change? When... Oh, the, the little kid thing? Yeah. It's certainly tr true in infants. Uh, it is true. See, the thing is, if you do drink coffee, you, and it go, it, it'll go past through the blood-brain barrier and past through the placental barrier, so it goes to the fetus. So it will keep your fetus awake. And if you've been pregnant, you know that that's, it's okay when it's a couple of months, you don't even know, but then after a while, it's like there's an alien and you're moving around. So um, it'll do that in the middle of the night. They'll do that normally anyway, but be inactive for 10 hours instead of 40 minutes is, would be... I don't think it's good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it probably goes away around two or three. Yeah, I mean, you're probably safe giving a kid things like chocolate and that when they're old. Because there's chocolate, like, a chocolate bar is like, your average, like a bar of chocolate, not a, something that's like a Three Musketeers, which just has a coating yeah. of paraffin. It's not really bad chocolate. Um, but in that, like, like a Hershey bar? Like my six-year-old likes black coffee, and I regularly catch him stealing. <laughs> Likes, likes black coffee. Yes. That's good. And what? And Lucky Strike cigarettes? Where's this kid from? It's like 1930 in your eyes. That's right, Mom. I got a scoop for you. They talk like, please tell me, talks like, like a 1930s reporter. I was kind of wanted to raise a kid to talk like that, but it would be weird. Um, yeah, it's, it's not something to worry about. And look, does it change his behavior? No. Yeah, so that's, that's fine. I mean, when he's too much. But yeah, I mean, the only thing you'll get if you're pregnant drinking coffee is that it will, the, the fetus will stay awake. And when you're older, like, like, like when, when it's later in, in pregnancy, like third trimester, and you can feel the kicking, which is, I, first few times, probably pretty neat. And after that, it's like, will you stop it? <laughs> the weirdest thing is when in the, about eight and a half months, and then you look, and I remember a lot of anybody's been pregnant or been around a pregnant woman has seen this, is like, you'll see a little fist in your stomach or a foot, and you go, that, there's a person in there now that I'm really kind of freaked out. <laughs> but yes, it'll keep that, it'll, you'll be able to sleep, <laughs> except for the inside you. So it's pretty safe, right? Smoking, don't smoke when you're pregnant, that's different. Um, don't smoke ever. Do whatever the hell you want, it's your body. No, I don't care what you do. Just don't. Don't smoke inside. Here, in your house. I don't care. So there's nicotine receptors in your cortex, your basal ganglia. Oh, look at that. Those are the three different centers in your reward system. Those are the. That's why people smoke cigarettes. They feel good to smoke. As my father said years ago, I don't care what anybody says, cigarettes taste good. And what he meant by that was it feels good. So that's the reward system, these last three. Uh, the cortex, of course, in fact, there are data that show that smokers, and this isn't true for non-smokers, but smokers uh, concentrate better when they're smoking. Right? There are also data showing that rats given nicotine do better on mazes than rats that are not given nicotine, that are given a placebo. You don't give rats little cigarettes, you have to inject them. It would be cool if you could get rats to smoke little rat cigarettes. Science should be working on them. And genetic engineering should totally be just trying to make us small baby elephants that could live in our houses and be pets. <laughs> Not babies, like a full-grown elephant this tall. Like miniature ponies. Yes! That's what, I'm, that's what I mean. Now I want one. Yeah, so I want, I want, I want like, a, like a guard elephant 
that when someone goes to break into your house, they hear an elephant, and it's like, okay, I'm out of here, right? I would anything for an elephant. That'd be great. Today, I'm just saying everything that comes to my mind. I normally let these things just go. It's when I go like that to my... Today, I've decided, just say whatever the hell comes to your mind, you idiot. Because I'm, I'm quite high. So, I wouldn't do that. I would not do that. It's very unprofessional. It's very unprofessional. Legal or not, you don't do that for work. So, this is why people smoke cigarettes, because it feels good to smoke cigarettes. It's rewarding. And because you're inhaling... The vapor, in fact, it gets to your brain almost immediately. And those of you who smoke uh, know that it gets to your brain immediately. The, 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 the withdrawal symptoms go away. They disappear. And if you remember the first time you had a cigarette, if you ever smoked, it made you lightheaded. It made you feel kind of great. So in the PNS, the peripheral nervous system, you get tremors. So you, you, one of the ways you can tell if people smoke is you get them to hold their hand out, and if they're shaking a little bit. I'm doing that on purpose, by the way. Uh, they may very well be smokers. You get disinhibition, so you, you inhibit firing. This is what's leading to the tremors, but actually what's happening is you're inhibiting inhibition, so you get disinhibition. And you get constriction of blood vessels. Another thing you can tell about people who smoke is they often have very cold extremities. One of those Sherlock Holmes tr uh, trips, uh, ticks, nah, tricks is that you shake somebody's hand and their hand's cold and inside, they probably smoke. Not necessarily, but it's a, there's a better chance that they do. There are, of course, central nervous system effects and reward system. You get the release of norepinephrine, epinephrine, do dopamine, and serotonin, so it's a stimulant. So nicotine's a stimulant. Why do people smoke to relax? And if you smoke or you've been around smokers, you know that people say, I need a cigarette when they're worked up by something. It could be before a big test. It could be when something bad's happened to them. It could be when they just want to do something that makes them uncomfortable. They have a cigarette first or afterwards. Right? I used to always have a cigarette before I'd order pizza because I don't like talking to people on the phone. I don't want to talk to people I don't know. I have so many psychological problems. Um, <laughs> so, okay, what, why would that be? It's a stimulant, but it makes you calm. And I mean, it's, it's a clear, it's, it's a real effect too. It's not people, people report it and they calm down. Well, is it the act of smoking that's actually with, sort of distracting you from the thing you don't like? Right? Could be. Is it alleviation of withdrawal symptoms? Withdrawal symptoms from nicotine are really nasty, and they're strong, like they last for a long time. I shouldn't say really nasty. They're as nasty as heroin or alcohol. But they are long-lasting. Besides the craving thing that happens, it's probably the worst part of it. And the craving for nicotine can last reportedly 15 years after quitting smoking. I don't crave cigarettes anymore. I haven't smoked for a long time. Uh, except when something really, really pisses me off. And I remember about six months after I had quit smoking, I wasn't six months, I six months, three months, my wife, 
comes home with his big box. Well, no, Jimmy, he goes, go to the car and get the big box, the car, the new barbecue. Okay. So I'm putting it together, which is always fun. Um, and so I put the, and then I, you know what happens, and then, because it's the fine, they're so finely machined, these cheapo barbecues. Have a good one now. And the screw wasn't fit, the bolt wasn't fitting properly in the thing. And I just stood up and I put my shoes on. And she said, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to the corner store to buy cigarettes. She said, no, you're not. Which was good. I'm glad she did. But yeah, to this day, still something. That's the only time I have cravings anymore. It's like, not anymore, though. So it could be that. Could it be there are nicotine receptors in the GABA system? That's a pretty good answer. Yes. This was discovered in the early 2000s. So there are nicotine receptors in the GABA system. In other words, they literally, it literally does calm you down. So this thing has a name. Some guy named Nesbitt saw something everyone else saw. Oh, look, people get calm when they take a stimulant. Ooh, I gotta name it so I'm famous. It's Nesbitt's Paradox. You know how the word flammable and inflammable mean the same thing? We're gonna call that from now on Broadbeck's paradox. It's just, just, you just name things, apparently. So it's Nesbitt's paradox. It's probably all these things, but I like that we actually have a physiological reason here. And I found this out, actually, before I was even interested in this stuff. I went, I guess I just started teaching a course like this. This was G2000, I was at a conference, and I was with my friend Duncan, and Duncan said, then we were going to this talk, and he said, oh, this is the wrong talk. I said, no, this is totally the right talk. I want to hear this. And that was pretty cool. All right. What about acid? Basically, what hallucinogenics do is they mimic a neurotransmitter, but you're getting so much of it at once. Hallucinate. So LSD is about a 110-minute half-life. So you can see it's going to be kind of long-lasting. Um, magic mushrooms work in a similar fashion. Psilocybin. Um, LSD, of course, you take, uh, it's very small amounts. As you probably, well, I don't know if you know this, but when you take a hit of acid, it's measured in micrograms. Right? Like you take 10 micrograms of acid, maybe. That's a pretty big hit of acid. The first the person who dis discovered LSD, I think his name was Hoffman, it's a Swiss chemist. Um, he, mistakenly ingested this chemical he had synthesized in his lab, um, and he took 25 milligrams. So that is basically at least a 1,000 hits of acid. Something like that. He lived to be 93, so... He rode his bike home, apparently, from his lab to his home in Geneva, and then I uh, don't know what he did for the next week and a half, <laughs> but... Uh, so you take, and you take acid, typically people take it directly in their mouth, um, dissolved. Used to, when, I was a, when I was a younger man, people used to, used to buy sugar cubes that had acid on them. Uh, there's also water acid, so you take it like out of water, or little microdots, which are these little tiny dots that dissolve in mucous membranes. So you put them in your mouth, or any other place you have a mucous membrane, you can make up your own joke now. There was a guy in my high school that always took acid in his eye. I take it in my eye, man. It's totally different. It's like, no, it's not. 
And I, know, I wish I knew then what I know now, because we were thinking, there's no way it's any different. You're putting a very small amount of a drug in your eye. You're just an idiot. So magic mushrooms, you don't take that way. You take by, you, you can just eat them. Peanut butter. Nasty, horrible, horrible, bitter flavor, so I'm told. Uh, or make horribly bitter tea. A lot of sugar in that. Unpleasant. This is where Timothy Leary started at. You know Timothy Leary, the guy that really became the spokesperson for LSD. He was a, he was a tenured professor at Harvard. But tenure will not protect, protect you from handing out magic mushrooms to your class. So I'm not going to be giving any of you drugs. Early 60s. A lot of these drugs were legal because they weren't... There were no laws against something that didn't exist yet. So for a time into the mid-1960s, LSD was just legal because it, it was a synthesized drug that no one had invented. Like, it hadn't existed yet. Uh, what, oh, the morning glory seeds. So a morning glory is kind of flowers. So if you want to go to Canadian Tire in the, or Lowe's or Home Depot in the garden section in the early spring, you can get some of these, crush them up, eat them, or you look, don't do that, it's stupid, but you could. A harmine, which is a uh, 60s kind of drug that no one takes anymore. Oh, my favorite is bufotenine, which is um, a hallucinogenic serotonin-like drug that is produced by a type of toad in Australia on its skin. This toad is very brightly colored, okay, and basically it's very unpleasant for non-humans to have the doors of perception opened. So when another animal, perhaps, I don't know, a wombat, I don't know anything about Australia. I don't know anybody animals in Australia, so they're all trying to kill you. Um, eats one of these, and it has this very unpleasant experience, it never eats another one again. It's called aposematism. A lot of animals take advantage of this. So this gets discovered in the geez, early 1980s. Yeah. That this is the defense that these animals are using. And then the media says, this is, I mean, I don't, I'm not usually blame the media guy. I usually blame the media blamers. But this was picked up by the popular press after you know, an article gets published in Nature, I think, and, then, and they say, so you could lick toads in Australia. That's what they do to get high. You know, Australia is the most urbanized country in the world. 85% of people in Australia live in cities of at least a million people. You can get acid. <laughs> you don't go into the outback and find some toads. I guess that's not how it works. I see you've played Nimesy Spoonsy. Some toads. Gonna lick them. Nobody does that. Mad Max goes and gets toads and licks them, I guess. Okay, uh, norepinephrine and acetylcholine-like drugs. I talked to MDMA, that's um, ecstasy. STP is another drug you smoke that no one takes anymore. Mescaline. Mescaline comes from a kind of cactus, and it'll give you hallucinations. Now, the thing about mescaline is that it's not related whatsoever to... Mes to, to there's no mescaline in the worm at the bottom of tequila. And there is no mescaline in mezcal, which is the, uh, something very similar to tequila. Just because the word sounds the same doesn't mean they're the same thing. People are really dumb. 
Not yes. You, if you started to, to take a, you eat a lot of nutmeg, you could hallucinate. But the amount you have to eat, you'd be puking before you hallucinate. When this came out, I remember this being, again, picked up, and, and, and I remember seeing people in the late 80s on the bus, these dummies, eating bags of nutmeg. Don't you know what guy you can get weed from or something? Yes, nutmeg. <laughs> Mandrake. Uh, and deadly nightshade, which are related to potatoes and tomatoes. I have a personal policy. Anything with the word deadly in it, I don't ingest. Uh, these have been used for years in uh, sort of traditional medicine in uh, old world, actually. Because I'll make you hallucinate. PCP. Uh, angel dust. Nobody takes that anymore because uh, it's easy to overdose on that. Drug dealers are business people, and when you kill your clientele, it's a bad move. Um, this was popular in the 70s, early 80s. It, um, people said it gave you super strength. No, it doesn't. It makes you do stupid things where you would normally surrender. So when a cop would, would go after somebody in angel dust, a person would fight back. And normally what you do when the cops say, do you do this, you do that. But if you don't, because you're an idiot on Angel Dust, and they're caught, you know, who's a super strength? No, he's fighting back. Nobody's ever fought you before, that's all. Super strength. What are the first two? Oh, MDMA, that's uh, ecstasy. And STP, I don't even know what it stands for anymore. It's a, it's a, uh, a hallucinogenic. It's, it was popular. You'll see people make it the Woodstock documentary. So it's popular in the late 60s. People don't, I haven't heard of anybody doing that in, ever. Special K or ketamine, it's a club drug. Club drugs are fascinating. Um, every year someone does a club drug presentation on my, in my neuropharmacology class. So these basically are things that make you hallucinate. You will maybe see things, maybe hear things, etc. For example, mescaline, you'll see things. LSD, you'll hear things. Psilocybin, you will hear things, sometimes see things. Now, the recently made legal drug, marijuana, or as it's spelled here in this poster, marijuana with an H. Actually, first of all, Greek Madness is funny, and you should watch it. It's available for free. Uh, legally, you can download it. You can, you, if you get torrented it, it's definitely illegal. It's one of the few things. It's a funny, funny movie. It's a Propaganda movie from the 1930s, the 1937, the U.S. Department of Education trying to get people not to take marijuana. And it's funny, uh, the thing, this part here, these people here, this is the, this is the dealer. He's the most clean-cut looking dealer I've ever seen. And this is, uh, he gets her into the drug scene. And they smoke these um, joints that the guy has him in a silver cigarette case, which is kind of neat. I think you can get that from the Ontario Cannabis Store now. And uh, they smoke it, though, like a... Now, you don't have to hold it in. Just a hot smoking tip. You actually... Holding it in doesn't do anything. You just have to inhale it. And it even works if you don't inhale it because you'll absorb it through mucous membranes in your cheeks. But it'll work more quickly if you inhale it. I like this one here. This is uh, Weed from with the Roots in Hell or Weed from the Devil's Garden. It's different. Uh, those are two, two titles for the same sort of uh, B-movie documentary. Not documentary, sort of 
mockumentary, if you will. Um, this is great, because apparently these people are injecting weed, because that's a thing, I guess. Weird orgies, wild parties, and unleashed passions. I don't think that one is available again in the cannabis store. Um, I've never seen people have unleashed passions when they're hot. I've seen people do this. Look at this. That was maybe me, me on Monday night, but doing one of that. And it's all these, like, it's just hilarious. So you should actually watch me for madness. It's actually, it's very funny. Play faster. Keep that in mind. So how are these things discovered? The active ingredient, the one that makes you high, is delta-9 THC. So a synthetic cannabinoid, levonetridol, was given to rats to see where it binded. This was in the mid-80s. And they had a group in the next lab at the National Institute of Mental Health in Bethesda, Maryland, found a gene that coded for a receptor site, and it turned out that the, the, the two maps matched. It just makes me, I love things like that when two people working on a similar problem come together. So science is just cool. So this is how it was discovered for THC. Now, the active ingredient, the one that makes you high, is delta-9 THC, but CBD is another active ingredient, it tends to make you sleepy. It calms you down. And if you do order drugs from the government, <laughs> I love this country, uh, one of the things you'll get in your package is a little flyer from Health Canada telling you about marijuana, which is just so cute. Aren't we cute? And they'll tell you, if you're not experienced, Try to find something with a low THC content and a roughly equal CBD content. Because they kind of balance each other out. So it has anti-anxiety properties, for example, TB, uh, CBD. THC might make you anxious. Things like that. But THC receptors, where are they? In your cortex, you don't think well. Higher order cognition does not work well when you're high. Hippocampus, there are memory effects. As many of you know, have you ever been sitting around talking to each other when you are, after you have ingested cannabis, and you both lose track of the conversation you were on? Like, just on. So then, <laughs> so that happens. That's a thing. Cerebellum, oh boy, you might have trouble with balance and fine motor skills. Again, so funny, like we ordered some, we got it, and I remember, and my, my son said, what's that? I said, that's, my wife said, it's marijuana. And he's like, oh, okay. And I remember when our daughter found we had some, when she was 10, so this was in 2002, 2003. And it was in the spice rack along with herbs. <laughs> and she said, what's that? I said, it's marijuana. She said, isn't that illegal? I said, yes. And you, please don't tell your teacher or the baby people will come to take you from us. <laughs> Whereas now it's like, it's weed. We bought some weed. Don't touch it. <laughs> Get your own. Um, basal ganglia. So this is, uh, basal ganglia does uh, sort of, <laughs> what I'm looking for, communication between cortex and the limbic system. 
Uh, spinal cord. Oh, that's interesting. So this is probably going to affect things like pain transmission, and it is a painkiller. Your brainstem, it messes with sleep, sleep, sleep and wakefulness. Hypothalamus, this is where the munchies come from. It makes you hungry. That's a real physiological effect, right? And these are THC effects I'm talking about. It makes you hungry and thirsty. Can it make you not hungry? Yeah. That would usually be something higher in CBD and low in THC. Yeah. Or if you just take CBD oil, things like that, yeah, that you won't be hungry at all. Yeah. Or you might be so stoned that you realize you shouldn't get up and make a frozen pizza. <laughs> that may be personal experience. But you get really hungry and stupidly hungry and, for, and you'll eat anything, right? You'll eat a can of corn. I saw somebody do that once. I didn't do that. Uh, you, might, you might go back to your friend's house with your two buddies, and your one buddy says, like you're in a TV show, says, don't eat that chicken. I have to go to the bathroom. My mom made a chicken, but don't eat it. Like, this literally happened. And my friend looked at me, and he, we came back 90 seconds later. He went and peed. He came back, and the chicken was, we all had chicken fat all over our faces, and it was gone. And he's like, did you eat that chicken? We went, no, because <laughs> you're an idiot. And thirst is a real thing as well. Your spleen, what? What's your spleen do? Who knows what your spleen does? What's your spleen do? Filters blood. Yeah. It does what? Sorry? Filters blood. That's more kidney and liver. It makes something. What's it make? Doesn't it make white blood cells? Right? There are antibacterial properties. Uh, so there's, it's, it's, it can be used as a, look, everybody thinks, especially before it was legal, but when it became legal, sorry, especially before it was legal, it's a miracle medicine, man. Look, there are also antibiotics you can take that were, you know, built to be antibiotics, but there are antibacterial effects of marijuana. Okay? Okay. So some conclusions about drugs. The first thing is drugs are fun. Like the reason people take drugs, psychoactive drugs, is because they make you feel good. They activate your mesolimbic dopamine system. So that's ventral pigmental area, medial forebrain bundle, nucleus accumbens, right? So that's why people do them. It's not a moral failing or something. And the idea that conditioning is the basis for problem drug behavior makes a lot of sense. Because conditioning works such that the thing you did just before the reinforcement gets more likely. And the thing you did just before you got your reward system activated was smoke a joint, or drink some alcohol, or have a cigarette, or snort some cocaine, or whatever. That makes that more likely. The negative consequences, the things you feel the next day, or maybe in 20 years, <laughs> those aren't affected, right? So it explains this sort of paradoxical 
nature of drug-taking behavior, the conditioning explanation. It also explains why people of lower socioeconomic status are more likely to have drug problems. Right? And if we give people more things that they can get reinforcement from in their lives, they are less likely to turn to things like drugs that most people, by the way, most drugs, people take them. Look at the things that are legal. Caffeine, nicotine, alcohol, and now marijuana. Nicotine's a bad That's fair. <laughs> but mo the other ones, most people take pretty responsibly. Most people aren't alcoholics. But most people, most adult Canadians drink alcohol. Right? But most people have other ways to reinforce themselves other than just a bottle. Most people who take marijuana don't devote their lives to it. Yes, I know there was that one guy in high school. Right? It's always the one guy that had Visine in his locker when he was in grade eight, right? As I mentioned. Probably the same guy that took acid in his eye. Totally different. Most people that take drugs take them responsibly. 63% of adult Canadians have smoked marijuana in their lifetime. That's, and that's a stat from before legalization. But it's not that 63% of Canadians are high all the time at the expense of other things. Right? So people can take drugs responsibly. But some people can't. And the people that have more trouble with drugs tend to be people that have fewer things in their lives that are reinforcing, that activate the ventral tegmental area of the medial forebrain bundle and the nucleus accumbens. So it's an opportunity thing. So this, it's, that's the way the world actually works. And telling people that is not always pleasing to people. It doesn't mean I want you to take drugs. It doesn't mean I want you not to take drugs. You do whatever the hell you want, you're adults. All I'm saying is that don't think of it as a moral failing. Don't think of it as a disease. I, I think think of it as a problem of people not having enough in their lives that's, that's reinforcing so they have something that's clearly easy to use. That now and then people end up having tr trouble with drugs. All right. So don't mix your science and your morality is what I'm saying. You may think drugs are wrong, and that's fine. You go nuts. I don't care. But it's just conditioning. It's just conditioning. All right. Questions about drugs? We spent three days on drugs. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and now we'll do 20 minutes on hormones. <laughs> There's one thing I find interesting, and one I don't. <laughs> that's how we choose what we lecture on, Ed, if you into this yet, so you guys are only second year. Um, well, that's boring, we'll skip that. Okay, hormones. Basically, these are very similar to neurotransmitters. But no, any question about drugs for me? Not even the drugs. Yeah, that's here. Um, yeah, please, sir. Nicotine. Yeah. Um, so when someone smokes a cigarette and turns green and gets the spin, is that the body's natural reaction to too much nicotine? Uh, yeah. Basically, you're kind of overdosing in a way on nicotine at that point. That's the kind of amount that people will take. Uh, when you look at uh, sort of traditional uses of tobacco to the point of people hallucinating, uh, you see people 
throughout the Americas, uh, traditionally Native people in some ceremonies doing that. And they smoke enough that they hallucinate. Right? That's not meant to disparage anybody's beliefs. No, I'm just trying to make that clear. But I mean, it's, it's taking a drug to the point of seeing things. And it is, again, if the first time you smoke a cigarette in your life, if you remember if you smoke, um, it does make you, that was fun. Like, it's very quick. The worst part of it is it's very quick. If it lasted like marijuana does, you know, like four or five hours, that'd be fine. But it's like, oh, it's gone. I guess I'll have some more. <laughs> now I'm going to buy some cigarettes. That's the problem. And people that were doing that, again, traditionally, usually were just a certain person that was able to do that. It's that experience. Right? Just like, I mean, um, we talk about like peyote and mescaline were used by people in um, Central America, Native people, as jerk for religious reasons, I guess you'd say, to see things. Right? Doesn't invalidate anybody's religion. Just says that's what they're using it for. All right. Oh, that was a good question. Other questions? Yeah, okay. All right. So uh, hormones are basically the same as neurotransmitters, except they work more slowly. And what they do is they go into an organ, usually, essentially. Uh, sometimes brain regions, though. But there, we tend to call them neurotransmitters. We're screwed by what we call glands. <coughs> there are homeostatic hormones. These do things like keep you, keep your blood sugar steady, things like that. There are reproductive hormones, so those are the fun hormones that you can't learn, you, you suddenly have to learn to deal with when you're 12. Why am I always angry and horny? Oh, that's 12 year olds, right? That's, they're just like that. It's horrible. Kids at about 12, I don't like them. They get about 17, they start to become okay again. 18. Even, unless it's your own kids, and even then. <laughs> Stress hormones. That's basically three different types of hormones. What they're doing is all roughly the same thing, which is go, they bind your receptors, and that then causes some chemical change in that organ. Usually it involves the expression of some gene, which changes some other gene, etc. And then you end up with some change in, in our interest behavior. So... The hypothalamus sends out releasing factors to the pituitary, which is kind of the master gland of all the glands. And the pituitary tells other glands to make, make certain hormones. So it's doing this through messaging, through signaling. It's kind of slow. It's not like the way our nervous system, our, our central nervous system works. This is an autonomic nervous system. CNS and PNS, they are instantaneous, as we know. But they feel that way, and they're very quick, right? They're very quick. So you like to change different things you notice? Yeah, each class is different. That's a good idea. When I got the graduate school, I was taking notes, and I throw them away at the end of class because I realized the, the act of taking notes that was was helping me. It wasn't. I'd look back over them, like I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> but if I didn't write anything down, I'd be like lost, which I was basically all the way through PhD one. 
So hormones enter cells, they turn on genes, this and then proteins are made, et cetera, et cetera. It's really, I'm not going to get into it. First of all, I'm no expert on this stuff, but secondly, I, eh, drugs are more interesting. We don't have a hormones and behavior class. We do have a neuropharmacology course. Let's put it that way. It should be on second term next year, and you should take it. It's fun. It's lots of fun. It's also cross-listed biology psychology. So generally, that's that. So sex hormones, um, they're interesting things. Because first of all, testosterone and estrogen and estradiol, they're almost exactly the same, which is kind of amazing. Chemically, they're very similar. Testosterone seems to contribute to the male superiority on average on spatial tests, and this isn't just in humans. It's a small, measurable thing. But it's on average. So I can't say that I have better spatial ability uh, than you do, but I can say that if we took all the guys, we have any guys we got in here? Yeah, it would be kind of tough because it's a small sample. If everyone was here, we took all the guys and all the women and did a spatial test, the guys are on average. But it wouldn't, it's not something that. I want to make this clear, like, talk about averages, groups, it's not individuals. You can't compare individuals. So you shouldn't say, oh, a woman can't be a fighter pilot. That's just being stupid. That's very spatially loaded. Low levels, this is women, so female humans. I change that to women, too, because I hate when people call women females. God, I hate it. Why don't I do that? I don't know. That's right. That's right. Um, so progesterone and estradiol, low levels, women should do better on spatial tasks, higher levels, not as well. But the verbal superiority shows up in women. On average, women are better at verbal tasks than men are. So what are we talking here? Um, something like, what part of speech is this? Or, so is this a verb and noun? Right? Something like that. Women are better on that than on average than men are. Again, you can't say that guys shouldn't be English teachers. Because even though it's a very verbally loaded task, I imagine. Or any, any kind of prof, right? Like, I mean, this is pretty verbally loaded. And again, I keep making spelling mistakes in my slides. Mm, says something. Okay. Well, that all came up at once. So the verbal thing we can't replicate in rats because rats don't talk, but we can replicate the verbal, the, the spatial difference. I told you about that earlier in the course, right? So that's a thing. Now, stress hormones, the thing about stress, what happens is the brain, you recognize the brain load, your mind, whatever you want to call it, recognizes a stressor. There's a lot of things this could be. And this is where... So you get a stressor of some sort, epinephrine and cortisol are released. So epinephrine turns on your, your, paras, sorry, your sympathetic nervous system. So your heart beats faster, you take deeper breaths, your mouth gets dry, um, blood is taken away from organs and goes towards your muscles. So you can fight or run away, bravely run away. 
and the opposite down, we'll change that so cortisol gets released. And everything goes back to the way you're probably feeling now. Too much cortisol actually damages hippocampus, but, hip, but cortisol levels are, are monitored by hippocampus, which is weird. Yes, please. Does epinephrine account for like, the freeze aspect of something? Uh, that freeze thing isn't, people talk a lot about that. I was just read a paper literally the other day that there may not, that may not be a thing. Maybe something people said that it doesn't seem like it's been, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, replicated. Yeah, so it's something that got picked up. Because you hear about that fight, flight, or freeze, but the freeze thing doesn't seem like it may be a thing. Um, so I don't know. I don't know enough about that, though. I'm not saying it isn't a thing. I'm saying yeah. I, there was this thing I read that said, ah, it's not as clear as people make them out to be. Yeah. Um, this does take a while, right? And you've had these things, you've, because we've all had stressful situations that take some time to react to. Things have to be pushed through your bloodstream, etc. So it might take 45 seconds or a minute to get the reaction. Right? So even if you've had, and it turns out the thing isn't stressful because everything turned out fine. Right? You almost get hit by a car. But you don't get hit by a car. And then 45 seconds later, your heart's beating faster and all this stuff because your system that has kept you alive as a human and before that kicks in. Because that really is a stressor. It could have killed you. The thing is, you can learn to control what stressors are. So you should not feel like this before a test. Right? You shouldn't feel like you're on the savanna of Africa 200,000 years ago and a saber-toothed tiger's about to eat you. That's a stressor. A midterm ain't going to kill you. Standing in line at the corner store, or even worse, standing in line at the grocery store and someone wants to pay with a check, and they keep running back, oh, I forgot something. And then the cashier talks the whole time to them, has a long conversation with them, and you're like, that's not stressful, don't do that. You can actually control that. When someone's trying to kill you, it's different. And every single time I have to speak at a conference, and I've been, this is my job, I talk in front of people all the time. I get that reaction. And I shouldn't. And I know it's not stressful. Like, I know nobody's going to kill me. And every single time I fool myself, I'm sitting there waiting to get introduced, and I'm sitting in the front row because you sit in the front row and you're going to speak, and I'm sitting there, and someone says, next up, uh, to talk about uh, our spatial, is spatial memory lateralized in humans uh, from Algoma University at State Broadway. And I stand up and I think, yeah, I'm doing great, I'm doing great. And I see the crowd and I go, <laughs> and everything gets all bright because my pupils dilate. But at least I know this will be over shortly. So take a slug of water, start talking. So you can control that. Now, look, I've heard people say, so you're saying if too much stress gives you hippocampal damage, should you, we stop giving tests? Guys, I'm talking about PTSD here. Okay? I'm talking about soldiers that come back and they've seen things, man. I'm not talking, I'm talking about sexual assault victims. I'm not talking about too many tests. Or I had an essay due and a test in the same day. 
That doesn't kill anybody. And if you get a, a sympathetic nervous system reaction to that, stop doing that. Realize it's not going to kill you. Questions about that? So we spent even less time than I thought on hormones. On that note, we'll talk about development starting next time, and I'll see you guys in the future. It seems crazy starting to talk about these Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to match them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, 
episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.